Hey friend, welcome to Job with Julie. I'm your host, Julie Slattery, and this podcast is a listener-supported outreach of authentic intimacy. Well, we made it to the end of the year. Crazy how fast it goes, isn't it? But I don't know about you, but when the year draws to a close, I start to take some time to reflect on things like what God has taught me through the year, some of the challenges I've faced, and really who God is helping me to become. You know, this kind of reflection is a practice uh, that in many ways has fallen by the wayside. As we celebrate New Year's, we just kind of continue into the next year without taking time to really look at what God is doing. And we miss out on a lot of the things that the Lord might be trying to show us. Well, that's why I thought this might be a great conversation to end the year with. I'm talking with author and psychologist Kathy Lurzell. Kathy is a huge proponent of what is called story work that helps people reflect on their experiences and really make sense of them. In this conversation, Kathy and I talk about what story work is, how it's helpful, and why emotional and spiritual maturity are more integrated than we might think. Let's head to the coffee shop for my conversation with Kathy Lorzell. Well, Kathy, before we start into our conversation, I just have to say how grateful I am for the work that you and others that you're partnering with are doing. Uh, when we look at our world today, it seems like there's so much drama. We talk a lot about trauma and trauma-informed kind of help or therapy. And I feel like you've been on some of the front lines of not only doing trauma-informed care, but also training people. So thank you for that. Oh my gosh, you're welcome. It's the privilege of a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, did you always know that you wanted to do what you're doing today? No. I I kind of came in it by accident, actually. M- mostly, and I think this is true for so many people who end up in, in this field, I found myself um, with a story and um, not really knowing where to go with it. Mm-hmm. And for me, the church wasn't it was kind of telling me to just pray more or have more faith or do more Bible studies. And so I was really hungry as a kid and then into college to figure out like what made me me and why I was reacting in ways I was reacting and why I was struggling. And um, And it wasn't until I uh, went to school and studied under Dan Allender that I started to go, oh, okay. This is something. But again, it was quite by accident. I made it there and I started my career in politics and working for the federal government. Really? Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a whole nother conversation, I'm sure. It is. Yes. Talk about trauma. I'm sure that was at some level traumatic. Oh, Lord. Well, I'll tell you, it actually prepared me to work within academia for 18 years. Okay. (laughs) Talk about politics, right? Uh Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it in particular that you heard Dan Allender say that started helping you connect dots? Oh, gosh. You know, it, it was this idea that you can't take anyone further than you've gone yourself. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, quite by accident on my own, because of my own calling, because of my own disposition, I was kept on finding myself in positions where I was hearing about other people's abuse stories, about trauma, about things that were going on in their lives. And I and I could hear it and I understood that something was going on. And then at the end of the day, I didn't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know how to help them. And my own stuff started to get triggered. 
So I would show up for someone and listen to their story, and then I would get overwhelmed and then disappear on Mm -hmm. them. And I didn't understand why or what was going on for me. So when Dan started to say, look, you've got to look at your own story if you want to lean into other people's stories or help them where they're hurting, it made a lot of sense to me. And the other thing that he always talks about is that you can't, you're the only one who can't see your face. Hmm. And I think that goes beyond just being able to, you know, we see reflections, we see images, we see pictures of our face, but, you know, someone who's sitting with me is actually going to be able to see my face more clearly, my micro um, movements, what I may be feeling. And I think the same thing is true for a story. And so we, we know our stories, but someone else seeing our story is going, they're actually going to be able to see it more clearly than we are because of where we've been harmed, our own trauma. And once Dan started to talk about that, I was just hooked. And I think the other piece was that he started to talk about God in a way where God wasn't afraid of the hardest parts of our story. And and that was not the God that I knew. Mm-hmm. And so Dan really introduced me to that God. And the combination of all of those things was very compelling for me. And frankly, I started to heal. And once you start to come face to face with something that actually makes a difference in your life, you become quite the evangelical (laughs) for it, right? Uh So it's not just knowing our own story, but it also sounds like the importance of knowing the right story of God. Absolutely. And how those go together. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 When we talk about trauma and we talk about healing from trauma, I think this has become much more of a popular conversation today than it ever has been. And I think even lay people are are becoming familiar with the idea that our body keeps the score, you know, that very well known book and that trauma is stored in our bodies and our brains. And there are all kinds of different approaches of how you can work through trauma. Why do you think a story approach is so effective? Well, let me just start by saying there are a ton of approaches out there and, um, I never want to imply that story work is the only way. It is a way. It's a helpful way for a lot of people. And the reason I think it's helpful, and and it actually does connect to a lot of the new neuroscience um, research that we now have, understanding how the brain works, understanding neuroplasticity, like all these different things. It actually, we were doing story work. Dan started story work a long time ago, but we've been doing story work before all that stuff came out. Mm -hmm. And as more neuroscience came out, it just confirmed what we had a hunch about what, which was why story work was working. Right. So let me start one with the, with the basis of trauma. Trauma is a buzzword now that everyone is using. Mm. And, you know, really the definition of trauma is, or let's, I want to actually talk about in two ways. All of us are going to experience traumatic events, difficult things that overwhelm our capacity to cope. Whatever natural resources we have, healthy natural resources. I'm not talking about, you know, drinking to numb it away or, you know, but our actual capacity to deal with trauma. And so when, and bad things are going to happen to all of us, it's inevitable, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean every single traumatic event doesn't mean that it has to change who you are or the way that you relate to the world. If you have care and connection 
and attunement and supportive people around you, and you are resourced within your own body, you can handle a lot of really difficult things. It doesn't mean that they're not difficult, but you can you can move through them, right? Mm-hmm. If you have capacity to grieve, to cry, to have sorrow, to have support, to let other people into your suffering, right? You can move through trauma. The trauma we're talking about in story work is called embedded trauma. And this is all from, I get, I get all this stuff from um, a phenomenal neuroscientist called, uh, his name is Dan Siegel, and he's written some great books on this. But basically, embedded trauma is where we have a traumatic event, and it doesn't actually receive the care and the tending that it needs in the moment in order for it to move through your body, for your body to metabolize it. It gets stuck. Mm-hmm. And when you have enough trauma that gets stuck in your body, I like to think of it as like a river where you have, you have a tribute, you know, you have a a river that's like can carry a lot of hard things through, right? It can handle floods, it can handle logs. But once you start to have some logs that are jammed up, you know, that aren't actually pushed through that get lodged in there, it starts to impact your capacity to then handle future trauma and other things that that come up and then it starts to pile up and it creates a dam and then you spend a lot of time doing workarounds right like you the water has to go somewhere so it starts to flood the plains even more you have less capacity because this main river that you're meant to have is blocked up and mm-hmm. so story work what we do is we go back to your stories of origin your family of origin, your your original stories. And we start to look at where are those logs that are jammed up in your body, in your mind, that happened to you that have not actually been healed? And how do we help loosen those things so that we can start to get that water flowing again? Because a lot of people will show up in our office or do, wanting to do therapy because of current things that are going on. But the, our approach is that you can try to handle current things. But unless you go back to the original place that those kind of current ways, styles of relating to the world, unless you go back to those original logs, you're not going to get a whole lot of relief up here because your body's natural capacity to deal with hard things um, isn't working the right way. Mm -hmm. And would you say that we're most vulnerable to trauma as children because maybe we have fewer just internal resources where we're less resilient? Absolutely. And it's not even necessarily about resiliency. It's about our capacity. One, we only have our caregivers Mm -hmm. and we can't choose. We didn't choose them. So you have no chosen family, right? So now as an adult, you choose who you marry. You can choose to not be married to them. (laughs) Like you, Mm -hmm. you have a lot of choice. You have friends, you have jobs, you can change. Like there's a lot of change that you can do as an adult. As a child, you're stuck. Mm Mm-hmm with your family. And there are two things that are happening as a child. You have two sides of your brain, your left side of your brain, which holds concrete memory, thought, language, logic. And you have your right side of your brain that holds implicit memory, like feelings, um, instinct, uh, intuition. And again, this is this is a very kind of Sesame Street version mm-hmm. of neuroscience. We'll but take it. Yeah. That's about the extent that I would say my expertise to. And so what happens for a child is that the thing that helps us understand and connect our left and our right brain is our prefrontal cortex. That prefrontal cortex in our brain is not fully developed until we're in our 20s. And so a child will adjust their sense of what 
they can expect out of care according to what's available to them by their parent, Mm -hmm. by their caregivers. Mm -hmm. And so, and a child will always let their parents off the hook for harm and internalize it as it's their fault Mm -hmm. because they don't have any other choice. Like to actually have the brain capacity to be able to say, gosh, mom is really stressed at work today and she's overwhelmed and that's why she doesn't want to play with me. No, a child will look at their mom who says, gosh, you know, honey, I don't, I don't want to play today. I'm, I'm, I've had a hard day, right? They then look at that and they internalize that as my mom doesn't want to play with me. Mm-hmm. They just can't nuance. They, they can't nuance. Yeah. And that's what the prefrontal cortex does. And so without the nuance, the, a lot more trauma can get embedded in us because we can't actually take ourselves out of the current moment, make sense of it have an understanding of what's actually happening to us to allow ourselves to move into comfort and more soothed states. Mm -hmm. Well, you just made a whole lot of parents very paranoid. (laughs) I know. It's okay. (laughs) That's my job. I know you're a parent and I am am too. And yeah, it's, you kind of come to a conclusion at some point, like, yep, I'm going to mess up my kids. Uh, But I also (sighs) can be part of repairing that and healing. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. There's a great uh, psychologist out there who's written a lot of I mean, she's the the origin of a lot of um, therapeutic approaches for parents. And she says, look, there's no way you're going to get it 100% right. Mm. Shoot for 60. Mm. Okay. 60%. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, that, that brings up another question for me that people sometimes ask me. When there are children or even teenagers who have experienced trauma, I think in my experience, I found that it's really hard to help them process trauma. Like... Um, what I've seen happen is a lot of people are not ready for this kind of work until they reach maybe their late 20s or early 30s. And parents are and caregivers are like, well, what do I do for kids and teenagers that have experienced trauma? What are they capable of doing? And to what extent do you just kind of let them ride out the coping and deal with it as adults? Mm-hmm. Well, One, let me just say, I swore to myself I would never write a parenting book for this very reason, Mm. because parenting is one of the most complex, difficult things that is so humbling for everybody, Mm -hmm. including me. I mean, if you saw our home, you'd be like, how are you on a podcast talking about this right now? I get it. Uh It's a mess. And and that's okay. And I think that makes us feel more normal. It also is terrifying because I'm like, how are any of us going to raise functional children? I don't know. But all I know is I have two funds in my home that we put money towards. One is a college fund. One is a therapy fund, <laughs> whichever one they need first, you know? <laughs> yeah. that's They get access to it. In all seriousness, so especially in this day and age, there's so much there are so many difficult things that are happening all over the world all the time. And our kids are exposed to it. Even if they're not exposed to it, they're exposed to it through our dysregulation. Mm -hmm. So a child will read bodies, will read minds. And they, if you're stressed out, they know it. Mm -hmm. They're picking up on it and they're reacting to it. Right. And so one, the best thing you can do as a parent is to deal with yourself. Mm -hmm. And what you're describing goes back to what you said you first heard Dan say, which is you can't take anyone further than yourself. Because if I, as a parent, are trigger- am triggered by, oh no, my son is rejecting me, 
like, I hate me too. And, you know, right. like, we don't have the capacity then to hold that. Absolutely. We begin to act out of our own self, which is, Kathy, why you said that we need this as adults too. You know, I need yes. a place to go to process yes. my stuff too. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and and like I just did the sermon on the Beatitudes and attachment out in um, Atlanta this past weekend. And it was really fun to even look at like the depth of emotional awareness that's needed that Jesus is telling us about in the Beatitudes is almost impossible to do if you are not emotionally mature and capable of doing that in your own body. Mm-hmm. And I think so often we don't think about emotional maturity as a key marker for spiritual maturity as well. Mm-hmm. And emotional maturity isn't just, you know, being stable, not feeling anything. It's being able to move through your own emotions and have access to the depths of grief and sorrow. I mean, in the same way th- the other day, Mike, you know, we were all completely losing our minds in our home, all of us. And, you know, again, I've been doing story work for 18 years and, you know, you still lose your mind, like you still dysregulate and I have more of a sense of what's going on. You know, but we were just a mess. And I sat in my son's bed with him and cried with him for 30 minutes as we're both like working through the disagreement that we had just had in the fight and the turmoil that we had been in all day. And, you know, and it's, it's not, I don't cry with my son all the time, but it felt really important in that moment to mirror back to him that like, this is a hard space. Mm-hmm. And we can be in this together. And I'm also a human being who has feelings and I can be impacted, but I'm also not going to fall apart. This isn't your fault, but let's we can be in this together. And that's really healing for kids. And I think when we talk about rupture and repair, which is the third thing we all need, is that when there's rupture, can you actually understand what happened for you and being able to go back to your kids with an age appropriate, right? You're not divulging and being like, you know, mom and dad had this huge fight. And so I was really upset. And I'm so sorry that I took that out on you. Right. But you can say it in an age appropriate way that doesn't pour all of your stuff onto them, but actually says, you know, this is on me. You know, I, I said this, and even though we, you were angry and you were saying things that were really disruptive and you, you know, we need to figure out how to help you deal with your anger you know, I am the adult mm-hmm. and I need to figure out how to stay more settled in yeah. places like that. And I'm really sorry. And this doesn't just apply to parent-child relationships. No. This applies <laughs> to marriage, friendship. Yes. And even as you're describing the importance of emotional maturity, matching our spiritual maturity, you see all the fallout that's happening in the Christian community because we have people that know theology, but there hasn't been emphasis put on emotional maturity and continuing to grow and just our capacity to love. Absolutely. Um, I I think we see the fallout of that. Okay. So there are some listeners who are tracking a hundred percent with you. They love what you're saying, but there are other listeners who are like, well, that's a whole lot of psychobabble. Uh huh. Yeah. Like, uh, (laughs) you know, I love those listeners. They're a lot of fun, you know, and they're leaning in and, if they're listening to this podcast, they care about emotions, psychology, relationships, but they also care deeply that what we're talking about is biblically rooted, that's integrated into their faith in God. And so I'm guessing that at times you've gotten that pushback, like, aren't you making psychology the salvation? You know, where is God in all this? And how do you respond to those kinds of questions? Yeah. Well, I think that's, So again, you know, I did this sermon last weekend on the Beatitudes on the Sermon of the Mount. 
And I think the more, for me, the more I look at scripture, the more I understand that God needs us to be emotionally, have emotional capacity to be healers, to be peacemakers, to feel hunger and thirst in terms of you know injustice. We need to be able to mourn. We need to be able to, to all those things that are listed in the Beatitudes. You can't do that. You can't do it. You can't love one another as you love yourself. Right? The commandment, you know, lo- love your neighbor as, as mm-hmm. yourself. If you don't love yourself, w- then you're not going to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. If you don't understand what it means to be connected to people, we serve a triune God who is deeply connected in relationship. We, the Genesis, you know, says that Adam wasn't, it wasn't good for him to be alone. We need partners. We need people in this with us. And so I think the fact that we serve this relational God who also calls us to be peacemakers, to be champions for one another, to love, to heal one another. Mm-hmm. You can't do that yeah. if you're not emotionally available. Yeah. And I think there's been such a mistake to separate emotions from like the spirit. Mm-hmm. Where what's the spirit without emotion or or intuition or you know we've become so afraid of this part of us. And it's not a free-for-all where, you know, you just need to trust yourself all the time. Like, no, you need to contend with your instincts, with yourself. And that's why story work is so important because you go back and you start to understand, you know, when you're a kid, you shift your behavior according to what's available to you. And those are adaptive behaviors. So, you know, you adapt as a kid. Well, now as an adult, what you needed to do to adapt as a kid is now maladaptive as an adult. And that's impacting your relationship with people, your capacity to lead well. You know, this is why so many people are falling apart in places of leadership in the church, right? They're not actually dealing with these maladaptive behaviors. And from what I see in scripture, God is constantly asking us to deal with ourselves Mm. all the time. Yeah. Well, and I guess here's where like biblical psychology would veer off from Mm -hmm. the mainstream is what is the power of that healing? You know, I would even nuance it more th- that it's not that we love ourselves, but as believers, we really embrace the love of God for us. Yeah, mm-hmm. that like I, I think that's the number one barrier. As much as we might sing "Jesus Loves Me" or read Francis Chan's "Crazy Love," it's like at our heart of hearts, we really don't receive the truth that God loves us. Like we're always trying to fix ourselves up or make ourselves presentable or. or living in shame and regret because of the ways that we have failed. And so we're as modern psychology is like, no, that energy is in you and appreciating who you are. I think the Christian worldview would say the power to do all the things you're saying come through surrender to the love of Christ. Absolutely. And a commitment to dealing with contempt. Yeah. Yeah. And when Jesus calls us to deal with ourselves, the Bible tells us to deal with ourselves. It's invite God to deal with me. You know, it's not, it's not just me and my therapist. Right. You know? Yes. And so, you know, I think that's again, where the principles that we were trained in, in care and psychology, they're not null and void, but they need to be integrated into this larger truth and relationship with God. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, I think for me, I've stopped separating out. Like, I think God is so ingrained and embedded and and not to take for granted, right? 
But, you know, when I sit with my therapist and I have a a revelation, I think God is there present speaking through her, Mm -hmm, for sure, you know, on my behalf. And so if even if God isn't spoke from my perspective, even if God isn't spoken of God, what that is in me and that's in her is like is contending with me. And so I, you know, and there have been other times where I've needed to go straight to God and say, okay, you know, I can't. I need you to work with me right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's been like a, a year ago, I was just um, in a uh, deep stage of grief around some things that were happening in my life and things that were I had to confront and I was being confronted on in terms of my own maladaptive behaviors. And I got off the phone and I was super exposed after this meeting and I was just really dysregulated. And I just heard God say to me, I'm going to bring you through this one. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring you through this one. And I need you to sit down. And he gave me a scripture reference and was like, you know, you and I are going to do some work right now. And I sat down on my couch and, you know, for about two to three hours, the spirit of God contended with me like a good father, Mm -hmm. like a good comforter, a good mentor. And it was one of the sweetest moments, you know, that I'll always remember for the rest of my life. And so to say that those things, like it's all of them combined right. yeah. that we need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, God speaks through his creation. He He speaks through his people. He speaks through his word. He speaks through his spirit. And all that is is key. What you're describing in relationship, one of the terms that I've come to really like is relational revelation. You know, because we talk about natural revelation, special revelation, but especially since Jesus, like he came and revealed God through his humanity. And he says, now you are my church. And there's a real sense in ministry where we're revealing God to one another. And the therapy process can be one of the most profound ways that that happens. So um, we've kind of talked around it, but I would love for you to describe what story work actually is. Yeah. So what we do in story work um, is uh, we go back to specific childhood trauma narratives. And, you know, there are lots of different ways that, that people do this. The way I do it in my private practice and the way I do it in group work is that I have someone actually write a story. So I'll work with someone to figure out, typically people have four to five major stories where if you say like, what are some of your trauma stories or, or difficult stories? And sometimes the stories are big T trauma, like abuse, physical violence, emotional violence. Like it's clear, this is a bad moment, right? Some of them are more subtle where it can be like, well, you know, at the dinner table at Thanksgiving, you know, my, my dad, like there was always this tension and, and I would never really understood what it was. And after that, you know, we realized that my parents were getting a divorce. So it's like this kind of more subtle things that lodge in them. And so we go through and kind of figure out what are some of those primary stories. And then we pick one and someone writes that story and actually writes it out or types it out. And then they come and they share the story. They read it out loud. And when they read it out loud, we then spend about, you know, 45 minutes to an hour engaging that story. And that can either be in a group context, which is really magical and amazing things happen in that context, or it can be one-on-one. But what happens is that when you write an actual story, 
your left and your right brain are more collaborative. And so your right brain has captured images or thoughts or impressions. Your left brain is doing language. And so what you're doing is bringing a lot more of your brain together to tell a story that you have actually written out. So you're looking for language and like, what's the syntax and how old does someone sound when they're writing the story? And people, then when they read it, they're shocked because they'll read a story and they're like, well, I just read it, you know, I just wrote it. So it's not going to make me emotional or whatever. And then they're caught by different parts in the story, or they all of a sudden are surprised by language they've used. And then the person who's the facilitator, the story work coach or the therapist is then watching for what part of this story has this child who was in the story needed to rewrite in order to not see really difficult things about their home that have become lodged trauma. And so, you know, you're looking at places of intentionality or where the parent actually really did, you know, so people will be like, well, they just didn't see me. It's like, well, they actually did see you and didn't let you, you know, go to the play anyways. Like, right. So it's not that they just were unaware, it's that they were very aware and it was far more intentional. And so you're kind of highlighting different things that really impact a kid when they're little that they don't have language for, they don't have words for, but they feel in their body and it's impacted how they see the world or, or what they're and how they're now, um, how it's manifesting in their current world. So you're, you know, and, and a story work coach is, or, you know, a therapist or someone who's been trained in this is really trained to be able to see some of this nuance and understand part of the story, understand what they're skipping over, you know, where they've kind of looked away from the truth of the story. And they're able to kind of bring their eyes back and be a witness in a way they really needed when they were little, but never had. And when you have that, it actually allows the trauma to move through your body and become more of a traumatic event versus an embedded trauma. Mm-hmm. Boy, I have a couple of questions kind of unpacking sure. that. So first of all, it, it sounds like the goal of the story work is not necessarily to get to the truth because, I mean, you know, like, because even when you look at memory work, our memories are so <laughs> unreliable and the memory of a child of something that happened like 20 years ago, the goal isn't necessarily to be an investigator in terms of what actually happened, but is is it more to get to the meaning of what happened? I, you know, I think it's both. I think you get, so there's a neuroscientist named David Schnarch and he talks about that we now understand that the way we can heal is by creating a more accurate biographical narrative of our past. And so it's not to say that we're gonna get down to perfect detail, but there are things that we can go into and when we actually look at the face of our father, at the face of our mother, actually look at as a detective and see like, what's actually going on in this scene? Let's look, you know, and and oftentimes, whatever people bring in terms of like a, a trauma, there is typically a trauma before the trauma. So let's say someone brings a story about sexual abuse from a neighbor. Well, there's a reason that they got into that situation in the first place. And so, you know, you're wanting to look at the actual event of the sexual abuse, but you're also then looking at this child who has held themselves in contempt for years now as an adult because they went to their house, even though they knew they had a pornography stash. And so now they're like, I, I knew and I went anyways. 
right? And they've held themselves on the line for that for years. Well, what we need to then start looking at is what was the setup that you were so lonely, that you didn't have connection, that you didn't have, you know, that, or can we bless your curiosity that there was something that you were curious about as a little kid? And is that okay? You know, like it, there was great harm that came from it and patterns that were then set up that we can deal with. But like, you're five, like, oh my gosh, a five-year-old is curious about everything, right? Like, but you're holding this little baby in contempt for something that they just didn't know. And their friend was paying attention to them because their brothers and sisters, you know, were off doing things with their parents all the time. And you were the one who was always left alone, right? Like, so you're looking at building more compassion for that little person, which then allows you to have more compassion for yourself and learning to kind of understand that there's a bigger story to this that's really impacted you. And you're, you've only cataloged it as I'm a bad kid who looked at pornography when I was five, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you're able to bring more of an objective view on what happened yes. instead of sort of the narratives that we write for ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who would say, I lived my story, like, I know my story. I think that this is all a waste of time. Why in the world would I have to go back and do this? Oh my goodness. Well, you know, it, this is it's funny. I was talking to Adam Young about this. Um, when we hear that, right, there's a sense of, look, if your life is fine, if you're fine, you feel like you're living healthy, good, connected lives, you know, you're raising your kids and you feel okay, like, you know, continue on. That's fine. Like, this work is for people who are realizing, like, whatever they've been doing this whole time isn't working anymore. And at some point for most of us, it starts to fall apart. And sometimes that happens, you know, in our 20s and 30s. Sometimes that happens in our 50s and 60s. And so our hope for this work is that it's just available to you when you need it. Yeah. It's not like you're trying to convince everybody that they need therapy, but it's a process and a tool that is available for us. Stories are meant to be shared and told. Like what's the use of writing a story if you don't tell it? And so that means that this work is not just for therapists. This is for community. The more I live the Christian life, the more I realize a lot of what's happening in the therapy room actually should be happening in Christian community. I mean, there's not to belittle at all what you do or what I do. But this isn't rocket science. Like we can hear each other's stories. We can hold each other's stories. What are some things that we can do to become friends in community that invite this kind of healing outside of the therapy room? Absolutely. So, you know, this church that I was just in Atlanta, they're doing story work as small groups, you know, and so they've had people who have gone through the Allender Center to go get trained on how to do this. And this is why, you know, I was with the Allender Center for a long time and um, helped found it with Dan Allender. And the reason we founded it was because we realized there was this huge need for people to be able to do this work without necessarily needing to get their mental health license and go through three years of, you know, psychological training at a graduate school you know, we need small group leaders who are trained in this. We need pastors who understand their own story. We need this happening everywhere. And again, like you can get in too deep. And so part of learning how to do this work is also knowing where you've hit your own limit 
of what you actually know how to do ethically without doing more damage. But really, we're talking about what does it mean to connect in relationship to one another and actually care about one another's stories. I just did a marriage conference in Miami where I pretty much the whole time just said, look, you guys should be each other's story coaches. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you should be experts on each other's story. And, and if you don't care about your spouse's story, why not? Like, what's going on in your heart that your heart is closed down towards the other person where, you know, you're not seeing that there's a little scared girl underneath when, you know, she's angry that the dishes haven't been done, right? Like, there's a part of her that's being triggered. You know, it's just it to build and to grow compassion for one another really means, like, do we know each other? And the more we really know each other, the harder it is for us to hold each other in contempt, the easier it is to love, and the more we're going to be able to be people who build beauty and are peacemakers and are really changing the culture of our families and our churches towards love and towards healing. Mm. And so you have provided, the the Allender Center has provided different resources that can do some training in this. But let me just ask even for people that want to start living this out in their own relationships now, what are a few simple steps that we can take to invite stories and encourage that? Dan and I wrote a book last year called Redeeming Heartache or two years ago. I don't even know how Mm -hmm. long it was, (laughs) a couple years ago. You know, and so Redeeming Heartache is a great place to start to get categories for how to start understanding story and understanding what happens to us. And so that's a huge resource for you to get started. And then I would say like, just start having coffee with people, invite people to your table and be curious. And are you a person who is hospitable and able to sit with someone and ask more than one or two questions? The stats are insane when we look at conversations, like most conversations stop after two questions. So just by asking a third question or legitimately caring about someone and be able to settle your own body, put your phone down, put it away, turn it off and be connected to the people in your life and invite people to share. We are desperate to share our stories. But we've also learned that for most of us, that sort of care is not the way that we live our lives, even at churches. So you can radically change your community. You don't have to take a single class, but you can radically change it if you just ask more than two questions and actually care about the answers. Well, what are some of the things you leave this conversation feeling most challenged by? It might be the idea that God wants to use other people to help you on your healing journey as you make sense of your own story. Maybe you need to start telling your story. Or it might be that God wants to use you to help people heal and be known. You need to move into listening and asking questions and hearing other people's stories. Community is something that is deeply important to us at this ministry. And that's because we know that healing takes place when people feel seen not only by God, but also by other people. We just never really heal alone. We need others to journey with us and to help us make sense of the things we walk through. At Authentic Intimacy, we continue to hear powerful stories of how God has used online book studies, coaching intensives, and cohorts in this community in general as part of your healing journey. Thanks for sending in those stories. They're such an encouragement. 
And maybe it'll make you think about jumping into a small group next year as you continue to pursue wholeness in your own life. Well, that's all I have for you, not only today, but this year. And as the year draws to a close, uh, we are closing out our year-end giving campaign. I would love for you to partner with us as we journey with people all over the world who are trying to make sense of God and their sexuality. If you'd like to partner with our ministry, what we do at Authentic Intimacy, you can do so either through a one-time or recurring donation. Just click the link in our show notes. Hey, thanks so much for joining me today and every week this year on the podcast. I pray God's richest blessings on you as you begin 2024. And I'll see you for our first episode in the new year on January 1st.